as uh, Gino said, Daniel 10. When I was in elementary school, we learned a few spelling tricks. The one general rule that most people remember from school is not a very good rule at all, as it turns out. I before E except after C. But not in eight or protein or efficient or glacier or lots of other exceptional words. The rule does get better with extra qualifications. You may, learned it, you may have learned it as follows. I before E except after C or when sounded as an A as in neighbor or way. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? I don't. If so, then you will have accounted for a range of exceptions. Still, you'll be out of luck on weird and ancient. One other rule I remember was the difference between principle and principle. One spelling means a fundamental truth, and the other means the most important and is the word that we would use of the head administrator at a school. The rule I learned was the principle is your pal. That's gotten me through life. <laughs> As a Christian, I find there are principles who are not so palsy-walsy. They are the principalities and powers, mentioned, see how clever that was, mentioned by the Apostle Paul in a list of demonic forces that aid the devil in his assault on believers. We get our most complete look at such a demon in the book of Daniel. I'm going to have to read all of Daniel 10 from my iPad uh, in order to get the complete picture. So uh, just follow along as I read. It won't take us that long. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Uh, this was the name that they had given to him when he was taken captive. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. The sound of his words was like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the, word, the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words." But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. 
Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Now, from the description in verses 5 and 6, we know that the person dispatched to Daniel was an angel. We believe it to be Gabriel. He had made contact with uh, Daniel twice before in chapters 8 and 9. Gabriel states plainly that he was hindered from coming to Daniel for 21 days, for three weeks, by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. He also learns that there is a prince of Greece. Now, it's obvious in the context that these princes are not the human rulers of Persia and Greece. They are somewhat equal in power to angels like Gabriel and Michael, who is mentioned here. Such princes are hinted at elsewhere in the Bible. In Isaiah 24, verse 1, for example, we read this. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on earth the kings of the earth. The host of exalted ones could be translated the powers in the heavens above. They are the supernatural beings, the demons, who are behind the kings of the earth mentioned here, who they influence to serve their nefarious purposes. These may have been viewed and worshipped as gods by these nations, but it's clear that they are fallen angels out to hinder the unfolding drama of redemption. The prince of Persia and the prince of Greece are two specific examples of these powers in the heavens. Daniel had been in prayer and had been fasting along with it for three weeks. Out of nowhere, Gabriel appeared to him and proceeded to tell Daniel he would have arrived sooner if he hadn't been hindered by the prince of Persia. Only tapping out to Michael, who had come to aid Gabriel, set him free to arrive when he did. After explaining to Daniel what was in store for the Jews, Gabriel revealed he would return to fight the prince of Persia and afterward he would take on the prince of Greece. Now we can conclude from the Bible that Michael and Gabriel have been assigned authority over angels who administer God's affairs to the nation of Israel. Michael in particular is the prince of Israel. In Daniel 12:1, we read, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, speaking of the nation of Israel, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and that, at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And so that's talking about the future great tribulation. But we learn there that Michael especially is the prince over uh, the nation of Israel. And Michael is clearly identified in Revelation 12, 7 as a leader of an angelic host when the text says, Michael and his angels. 
And so we're learning that there are angels uh, assigned over certain nations. Satan has also apparently assigned high-ranking demons to positions of authority over certain kingdoms. Now, I keep saying certain kingdoms because it's unclear to me if every nation on earth has a demonic prince or just those nations that have to do with hindering Israel. We have to be careful when we're uh, drawing conclusions from things in the Bible not to say things that aren't there. Uh, And the nations in the Bible that are especially involved with the nation of Israel, and why are we interested in Israel? Because it's the nation through which the Messiah has come. And so the nations that deal with Israel primarily uh, and that we know were satanically influenced to try to destroy God's plan were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Obviously, there have been many other nations uh, in the history of the world, many other important nations, the, the British Empire, you know, the whole the sun never sets on the British Empire thing, and uh, of course the United States, the great world power today and all. Uh, but the Bible doesn't really care about those nations uh, in the same way that it cares about Egypt, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, because these nations are directly involved with Israel from a satanic point of view trying to hinder God's work. Two of those six nations that I mentioned twice clearly have demonic princes over them, Persia and Greece, because we're told that, and I would wager the other four do as well. But I'm not sure if there is sufficient evidence in the Bible to say that every nation on the earth has a demonic prince assigned to it. Now, it's no secret Satan was opposed to Israel on account of her being the nation through which the Savior was promised to come. The study we do some Christmases and the biblical text of the booklet we wrote, The Girl with the Dragon Antagonist, it's the depiction in Revelation 12 of the devil seeking to devour the Savior born to the world through Israel. It's kind of a cosmic drama. Uh, It's kind of history put into a into a scene that we can understand and and it's it's the woman Israel going to give birth to the savior and the devil wanting to devour that baby and so that uh, extrapolates to these nations and how the devil has tried to influence various nations to stop the coming of Jesus Persia for example would be incited to stop the construction of the temple on earth the enemies of the Jews appealed to the Persian king at that time Artaxerxes who commanded the work to be stopped, apparently influenced by the demonic prince over his realm and his rule. In Ezra 4.24, we read, The work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so things are going on behind the scenes uh, in the angelic realm that are affecting these, uh, ho- these kings of, of the earth. As for Greece, after Alexander the Great died, his vast empire was divided, and eventually the Jews came under the control of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the ruler who would make desolate the temple by offering a sow on its altar and by erecting a statue in it. He prefigures the future Antichrist. And so what we're learning from Daniel is that the prince of Greece would come, a demon over Greece, who would influence Antiochus Epiphanes 
to come against the Jewish people to try and destroy them. All of this prompted one commentator to say, the portrayal of the princes of the nations in Daniel reveals that the unfolding of human history is not determined solely by the decisions made by human beings. For there is an unseen dimension of reality that must also be taken into account. In particular, there are malevolent forces in the universe that exercise a baneful influence in the socio-political realm, especially where the people of God are concerned. And so, you know, a lot of times as a Christian, you'll, you'll say to somebody, well, that's a satanic conspiracy, and they think you're some crazy conspiracy theorist. And it's not that the, the people you're talking about in certain government positions are Satanists or, or, or that they know that they're part of some conspiracy. But we know as Christians that behind the scenes there are these demonic princes in some nations, in some cases, that are influencing this behavior. Now, the question, of course, is what should we do with all this tremendous information? Well, we should do exactly what Daniel did which is nothing. Daniel did absolutely nothing about demons. We might say that there's demons controlling nations and Daniel do, did nothing, uh, didn't lift a finger to do a thing about it. Don't get me wrong. Daniel kept right on praying and fasting and serving the Lord. He kept serving the Lord through uh, Medo-Persia uh, until the end. Uh, but he neither modeled nor suggested any direct strategy that we should adopt towards the princes of the kingdoms of the world or any such territorial demons. As I mentioned at length in a previous soldier obsession, recently there's been a, an uptick in teaching about territorial demons and suggestions about how Christians must identify and oppose them if people are to be delivered from satanic bondage. I don't want to go over all of that again because we've already done it, but... There's no evidence in the Bible that every city has a demonic prince. And there's certainly no teaching anywhere in the Bible that we have to figure out who it is and how to fight him. Daniel is where we get this information. And as far as we can tell, Daniel didn't deal directly with... He didn't even pray for Michael and Gabriel. He didn't engage in anything that would be considered the modern-day spiritual deliverance ministry. He kept on seeking and serving the Lord as he always had been. There's no evidence uh, to, to, uh, of anything to the contrary. And so, therefore, uh, we should not get caught up in that type of sensationalism. Now, what we can say is that there is a relationship between spiritual warfare in the heavenlies and prayer on the earth. Daniel's three weeks of fasting and prayer coincided with the prince of Persia hindering Gabriel for three weeks. Daniel praying for his people influenced God to dispatch Gabriel to encourage Daniel with some information about things to come, and it also encouraged the devil to interfere. Had Daniel not been praying, of course, he wouldn't have received this information, but his praying actually activated the devil as well, something I don't want to dwell on too much. And so Daniel got into praying, and it's like, it was like, you know, the bell went off and everybody got into a demonic cage fight. Now, many people don't engage much in prayer, 
simply because they have embraced a worldview in which prayer simply doesn't make sense. If God is going to do whatever he's going to do anyway, what's the point of prayer? And there are people, they call it, some people call it the blueprint worldview. That everything is, you know, if you've seen a set of blueprints, everything is, is dialed in. And this is exactly what's going to happen. And there can be no deviation, even though you have free will, you know, supposedly everything is set. If that's the case, why bother to pray? Well, they say you pray because it changes you, not things. And so the Bible says to pray and we should pray and you find that it changes you. Now, James sums up the general teaching on prayer when he says that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And then in, in chapter 5 of his writings, he gives the example of Elijah praying. And what changed? The rain changed. Elijah prayed and it didn't rain. And then Elijah prayed again and it did rain. Now, Elijah might have changed too by praying, but Elijah's righteous, effective prayers affected the physical universe. We must conclude that prayer is powerful and effective, not just in changing us, but also in affecting God and therefore in changing the world. While it's true prayer changes you, Scripture consistently depicts prayer as significantly influencing God's interaction with us. As an example, I would cite King Hezekiah. Let me read this section to you. It's 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, you shall die and not live. And then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart. I have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you in the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Commentators are split on whether or not living the additional 15 years was a good idea because Hezekiah did some things in those 15 years which put the kingdom of Judah in jeopardy. Namely, he showed a contingency from Babylon all the treasures of his temple. And that kind of uh, lit something in them about maybe coming back and looting the temple. But the point here is Hezekiah's prayer certainly affected God and changed things. God said... Isaiah, tell Hezekiah he's going to die. Hezekiah prayed and God said, all right, I'll give you 15 more years. He changed the certainty of his death. Another example, more along the lines of repentance, but certainly showing how our prayers change things, is Jeremiah's example of the potter and the clay when talking about nations. He says in Jeremiah 18, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, pull down, and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey me, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. 
And so God, who is immutable and cannot change as to his eternal attributes, nevertheless has sovereignly chosen to allow prayer to affect the world and to actually change things. And so this should encourage us, obviously, to pray. Now, prayer still remains somewhat ambiguous. We cannot know unless God chooses to tell us why some prayers change things and others seemingly do not. If you're like me, a lot of my most fervent prayers are not changing the things that I'm praying for. The same is probably true for you. One commentator tries to answer it by saying this. He says, among other things, God must respect the necessary stability of the world and the irrevocable freedom of vast multitudes of free agents. Prayer makes a difference, but so do the necessary regularity of the world and every free choice humans and angels make. We have no way of knowing how the power of prayer intersects with these and other variables. We pray and God responds in the context of an unfathomably complex creation that, remember, is racked by cosmic war. And so prayer must remain ambiguous, but that does not mean we should not approach it with passion and persistence. And so the point tonight, obviously, in spiritual warfare, we don't need to be praying against demons, finding out the names of demons, taking over territories. Daniel was content to leave that to the angels. He figured, you know, Gabriel, Michael, you guys have got this. You, you, you take care of the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. I'm going to continue to pray for my people and to try to break through. Now, especially that I understand that my prayers are creating a commotion in heaven. And so, you know, we don't know if Daniel prayed for things that didn't happen. I assume he would because, like us, you know, I've had answers to prayer. Haven't you had answers to prayer? I've had other things that I wish I had answered in prayer. I have to just leave that with the Lord. But what I cannot conclude is that my prayers mean nothing to God because he doesn't love me any less than Hezekiah. And Hezekiah clearly, I, I, maybe there's some other way of looking at that, but God said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. <laughs> Set your affairs in order. Go see a notary public. Hezekiah prayed and God said, all right, I'll let you live another 15 years. Uh, and, and I think that's the, with that attitude, I think it, it will renew our heart to just seek the Lord and see what he can do through prayer. Amen? Amen. All right, let's do that.